Okay, we can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 this morning as we arrive at what has to be the best known passage of Scripture worldwide. I think about the world population now is, I think, almost 8 billion people. I'd say about 2 billion have heard at least this passage. Solid number have it memorized. And we're not talking about John 3.16, although John 3.16 has made it into popular culture. We're talking about a passage of Scripture that is known and recited by millions worldwide daily. We're talking about nothing other than the Lord's Prayer, which is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. So turn there. Eastern Orthodox Christians, and especially Roman Catholics, repeat the Lord's Prayer as a daily practice. It's laser etched into their minds, and the same goes for certain Protestant denominations. I was not raised in the faith, but my parents did send me to a Lutheran elementary school, and we had the Lord's Prayer memorized. I bet a lot of you have a similar background. You still could repeat this prayer down cold. And part of the reason for this is repetition. As my old seminary professor used to say, you know, what is the key to learning? Repetition. What is repetition? The key to learning. And he would just say that over and over again. But just by rote recital and sheer volume, this this prayer gets repeated by devout Catholics hundreds, if not thousands of time a year. In the age before clocks, people used to use the the Lord's Prayer to, to measure time, like in cooking recipes. Literally, they'd say, you know, simmer this broth for three Lord's Prayers. <laughs> Especially in countries with a large Catholic population, it wouldn't be uncommon to hear the murmurings of the faithful recite the Lord's Prayer under their breath. Or as it used to be called, pitter-patter. Did you know that's where our, our term pitter-patter came from? You might associate pitter-patter with the sound of rain or, or quiet footsteps, but it, it derived as a slang term for the first two words of the Lord's Prayer in Latin which are paternoster. And pitter-patter became a way, I think, townspeople would poke fun at medieval monks. You could tell a monk was coming by the sound of paternoster, paternoster, or pitter-patter, pitter-patter. And speaking of medieval monks, they could be seen walking around with this strange cord or rope tied around their waist, had 150 knots in it. That's because these monks aimed to recite all 150 psalms each day in prayer. And that the rope with 150 knots in it helped them keep track. But later, this, this evolved into a string of beads. You might see that today. But you know, back then, not everyone was literate. Not everyone could read the 150 Psalms. And so for the illiterate monks, they had a substitute. They could just repeat the Lord's Prayer 150 times instead of reading the 150 Psalms. But just, just imagine that. I mean, talk about pitter-patter. Just imagine repeating the same short prayer 150 times in a row. I bet you could do it within an hour, but you'd have to speed through it. I'm sure many of them did. But what a sad and ironic twist of fate that this model prayer given by the Lord himself would turn into a rote prayer recited mindlessly by the masses without meaning, without reverence, without uh, thought. It has become a chore of religion. There are even times in the medieval church when the people were made to memorize and recite the Lord's Prayer in Latin, even though they didn't know Latin. The same would go with many of the priests who would recite the whole Mass and the Lord's Prayer in Latin, even though they themselves did not know Latin. I mean, talk about truly meaningless repetition. And the irony of this comes from the fact that when you open the Bible and you find where Jesus actually gives us the Lord's Prayer, it comes in a context immediately following where he, he warns against meaningless repetition in prayer. It's the exact opposite of how the Lord tells us to pray. Look at verses 7 and 8, if you're in Matthew 6. Christ says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. How do you go from that to thinking it's okay to recite this same prayer 150 times in a row is beyond me. The Lord literally just said, God is not pleased by such mindless repetition. That that doesn't get his attention. It does not inform him. That type of prayer is worthless. Now, in reality, I I do know the explanation of how you can get to the point where the Lord's prayer itself is turned into one of meaningless repetition. And that is just by tradition, the power of tradition. Traditions form over centuries. And like the old chariots dug into those stone Roman roads, they become grooves, ruts. 
through that repeated use, repeated practice. Once you're stuck in them, they're hard to get out of. They're like tracks. And you had many religious people doing many religious things without knowing why they were doing them. They were stuck in a religious rut, not driven by truth, but by tradition. And that's how you can come to do the exact opposite of what the Lord actually said to do. You're just living by tradition, not by the word. But we don't want our lives, beliefs, or practices governed by tradition, especially tradition that's untethered from the word of God. We want our lives, beliefs, and practices firmly rooted and grounded in the word of God. We'll stake our claim on his word. And when it comes to something as important as prayer, all the more so. Why don't we just forget all the tradition and just find out what the Lord Jesus himself said about how we are to pray. And that's what we aim to do. We come to this text, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And more specifically, we're in, in this new context, right in the middle of a new path, uh, section. Starts in verse 1, runs through verse 18 of chapter 6. It all stems back to this, this main warning he gives in chapter 6, verse 1. We'll read that again. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Self-righteous hypocrisy was a real problem back then, as it still is today. God wants us to live righteously and to bear spiritual fruit. But even if you do the right things from the wrong motives, that fruit spoils before him. Jesus mostly here picks on the motive of pride, where you do religious things, even righteous things, to be seen by others, to be really praised recognized by others. And many back then were doing all these religious practices, good practices, but not for God's glory, just their own. And it accounts for nothing before God when it comes from such spoiled motives. Jesus then goes on after verse one to give three examples of how they did this back then that we might check our own hearts in all that we do. So he gives the example of giving and then praying and then fasting. Now with prayer though, he really expands on his teaching. Verses 5 through 6, he reports, uh, repeats rather the warning not to practice prayer to be seen by others. He puts a check on the wrong motive of prayer. Then verses 7 and 8, he puts a check on the wrong manner of prayer. He warns against meaningless repetition. We covered those verses all last week. So after that though, now we're into verses 9 through 15, where Jesus gives the positive side of that teaching. We wonder, okay, what, what then is the right manner of prayer? God doesn't want mindless repetition. He doesn't want meaningless sounds babbled at him. He doesn't want long, multiplied, rote incantations. All right then, so what does he want? What does pleasing prayer look like to God the Father? Thankfully, Jesus helps us here because he knows we, we need to know as well. So he leads us in a model prayer, which is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And before we say anything else about it, I think we probably should just read it. Let's read the passage. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. You can listen as I read. Christ says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Some of you might have been tempted to recite that as I read it with a Catholic background. It may have evoked some just memories of repeating it uh, a lot in your youth. For others, though, you might have the opposite response. You might feel strangely distant from this prayer. This can happen among some raised in Protestant circles and in certain Churches that almost as a reaction against the Catholic abuses and misuse of this prayer. The Lord's Prayer can be almost de-emphasized. It's, it's never really read or memorized or recited or used at all. They never really give it the time of day. Now I'd say both sides of this pendulum are wrong. It is certainly wrong to simply mindlessly repeat these words uh, over and over again. But it's, it's also wrong to totally neglect what Jesus is saying here and and not make it a major part of your prayer life. You most definitely should get to know it, read it, 
pray it, but only with meaning. As we've been learning, the heart and the mind must, must both be thoroughly engaged when we pray. And that's how this prayer is meant to be approached. Its words are far from meaningless. It's just over 50 words in the Greek, but they're jam-packed with meaning and significance. It's the most dense passage maybe there is. We want to know what this means, that we might learn how we are to pray as the Lord directed us to pray with fully engaged hearts and minds. And so that's, that's our simple but grand aim, just to learn how to pray from the Lord's Prayer, is to learn how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. If you've been at this church for a little while, it should probably go without saying that this is going to take us several weeks. You know, like, I don't do passages like this in just one sermon. It's just too dense. But uh, uh, just trust me, all the time we spend in the Lord's Prayer will be worth it, will be rich, because the passage itself is. But this morning, though, I, I want us to see the big picture before we spend however many weeks getting lost in the trees, we need to see the forest, see the big picture, what this prayer is all about. You might call this an introductory message to the Lord's Prayer. Help us get better acquainted with it. And along those lines for this morning, I just want to help us make some big picture observations of this prayer. Five to be exact. Five big picture observations of this prayer. So let's do that. You'll see where it goes. The first will be the, the title of the prayer. It's given a formal title in the text, but historically, it's typically been referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, I understand some take issue with that. This is the prayer Jesus is giving to his disciples. It's not really his prayer per se. It's sometimes, therefore, relabeled the disciples' prayer, which makes sense because it's not like Jesus would need to pray, forgive us our sins. Some would call it John 17, the high priestly prayer the real Lord's Prayer. That all makes sense, but look, Lord's Prayer, it's, it's a ubiquitous title. We're just going to stick with that to avoid confusion. Meaning, though, the prayer given to us by the Lord. This is meant for disciples. Secondly, the, the structure of the prayer. More important than any title is, is the structure of it. It contains six simple petitions cut in half. The first three focus on God and his glory. The second three focus on us in our need, already this is opposite to how most people pray. Most people start and end with their needs. Lord, just help me to get this thing that I want. Lord, help, help me get this, this need. But Jesus leads us to first and foremost set our mind on things above and just behold the majesty of God. Prayer, first and foremost, is praise. Where you're exalting God's name, kingdom, and will, as the first three petitions do. This is already communicating how differently Jesus thinks of prayer than us. It's not primarily the means of getting something, but primarily the means of giving something. Namely, praise and worship to God. That being said, God is not unconcerned with our needs. So Jesus still leads us to go to God as our Father with our needs. We are just to lay our needs down at his feet. But Jesus points us to our, our real needs, not for a new car, but for what? For daily bread, for forgiveness, for protection, and deliverance spiritually. Again, we tend to pray just barraging God's, uh, God with, with repeated requests for more stuff or better health or something like that. But you really find little room for that in this model prayer. Even in petitioning, Jesus leads us to be thoroughly God-centered and spiritually minded in prayer. He certainly does not view God as a cosmic Santa just giving us our every wish. Now third, I'll point you to the omissions of prayer. The omissions of the prayer, I should say. The omissions of the prayer. It's succinct, but these six petitions... They really give us all the guidance we need. However, it's also instructive to point out what's not said, what is missing from this model prayer. There's no prescribed location of prayer. Yes, we just learned in the context, Jesus warned against praying in public. He said, pray in secret. That was a corrective against those with a self-seeking motive in prayer. But Jesus himself often did not pray in an inner room. He prayed outside, in public, in private. Really, like 1 Timothy 2.8 says, we should pray in every place, 
There's no set place of prayer. There's also no set time of prayer. Contrary to Judaism and just about every world religion, Jesus gives no prescribed, regulated, clockwork time of prayer each day. Prayer is not meant to be rote and programmed, but spontaneous and dynamic. It's far more like 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which tells us to pray without ceasing. Jesus leads us in a spirit of prayer that is not confined to time slots throughout the day. You also notice there's no set posture of prayer. Standing, sitting, lying down, heads up, heads down, eyes closed, even eyes opened. No physical posture is uh, prescribed for prayer. And yes, in case you didn't know, you can actually pray with your eyes open. And if you ever prayed while driving, I hope you kept your eyes open. But so long as your hearts and minds are in drive, so to speak, and not neutral, you can pray anytime, anywhere. That's the point. It's much more like Ephesians 6.18. It says, with all prayer and and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. You also learn from Jesus here that prayer doesn't have to be long. Now, of course, there are many wonderful long prayers recorded in the scriptures like Daniel and Daniel 9 interceding for his people. But Pleasing prayer to God is not measured with a stopwatch. As we learned last time, it it was the pagans who believed they had to make long prayers to nag God into hearing them. The only way they'd be heard is if they just kept repeating themselves. But look, your words can be few. And if your motive, manner, and message are all correct, you can be assured God will hear you. He will be pleased. Speaking of the heart of this prayer, it really reads like a child talking to his father. And that's what this is. It's the children of God talking to their heavenly father. This prayer is familial, both in its address as God as father and in the constant use of the first person plural. Meaning it doesn't say my father, but our father. It doesn't say my daily bread. It says our daily bread. This is a prayer That serves as a model for all the people of God as they seek their one father with one heart, one voice, one accord. Now, number four, let's point out the function of the prayer. The function of the prayer. I've said several times that the Lord's prayer serves as a model prayer for God's people. And time we explain what that even means. That we might learn how this prayer is meant to function in our lives. Think back to the 12 disciples of Jesus. These were all Jews, and they knew how to pray. Like every Jew, they they knew how to pray. But they start following Jesus full-time. They're his full-time disciples. And as they they live with him, and they witness his life, and they witness his prayer life, they come to realize they do not know how to pray. Just witnessing the prayer life of Jesus was so radically different from the practice of prayer of any Jew in that day. The prayers of Jesus were not rote, they were not mindless, they were not heartless, they were not meaningless, they were not self-focused. Jesus prayed spontaneously and continually. He just prayed as one living in, in constant communion with God, who was also his Father in heaven. Prayer was not a chore, it was not a programmed activity that checked a religious box. It was communion, it was lifeline to the Father. And all the disciples witnessed in Jesus prayer that was heartfelt, mindful, and true devotion to God. And that took them back because nobody, nobody prayed like that. You might think you know how to play ping pong, for example. I mean, you pick up the paddle, hit the ball over the net. What's so hard about that? But if you were to witness an Olympian play ping pong, it's now an Olympic game. If you're a witness at the Olympic level, you would see an insurmountable skill gap between you and the Olympian. If you were ever to play such a one, you would have zero chance of scoring even a single point. And it would be so demoralizing, you would realize, you know, I guess I don't know how to play ping pong. And then you'd have one of two responses. Either you would just lay the paddle down, never to play again. Or you might go to the master and say, teach me to play. Like that's, that's kind of what the disciples were going through living with Jesus, only with the far more serious manner of prayer. I mean, just the way Jesus prayed was so much higher 
than anyone prayed at the time. His relationship with God was so much higher than anyone's relationship with this God. It just it shook them. Thankfully, they did not give up on prayer. Eventually, they worked up enough courage, and they went up to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. That's Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says this. It says, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. John the Baptist was an Olympic-level prayer warrior as well, and he taught his disciples how they ought to approach the living God. And now it's time for Jesus to do the same with his disciples. And right after that account in Luke 11, they see Jesus pray. They say, teach us to pray. Do you know what he teaches them? He teaches them the Lord's Prayer a second time. There are, in fact, two instances of Jesus teaching his disciples this model prayer in the scriptures. Being an itinerant teacher, he would often repeat material. We know that. It's not a problem. But that incident in Luke 11 would take place about a year or more after the Sermon on the Mount. The point is, both Jesus and his disciples knew they needed to learn how to pray. There, there is a right way to pray, and Jesus is happy to pass that along to his disciples. And once again, the right way is not about repeating some, some words by rote over and over again. The fact that there are some differences between the prayer in Luke 11 and Matthew 6 proves that. Even Jesus did not repeat all the same words. He omitted some words. He omitted some requests. It's meant to be dynamic. But the point is, in both instances, he was giving them a model, a pattern, which they could follow and be assured they'd be praying in the, in the right way. This model gives the right priorities of pleasing prayer. If you just pay attention to this model and pattern your prayers after it, you could be confident your, your words are pleasing to the Father. You may never be perfect in prayer like Jesus, but you don't need to give up on it. Follow his lead here. Now, a couple years ago, we were doing a little craft with the kids around Christmas time. We were making some ornaments like my grandma used to make. She would take some clear beads, string them together into these icicles for the tree and kind of a little keepsake. So we did that with our kids. We got all the materials together and piled them on the table, all the different beads, the, the tinsel, the hooks and all that. And my daughter was there eager to participate, but she wasn't really sure how to put it all together. So I had her watch as I made her a model. She watched as I strung them together in the right order and you know, put it all together. And then when it was finished, I, I set the, the model icicle in front of her, and she could then pattern her efforts by that model. And we didn't care if she perfectly replicated it each and every time. So long as she was just generally following the pattern and doing her best, it would be a keepsake to us no matter what, right? We would be pleased just by her genuine effort. And that, that's kind of what the Lord is doing with the Lord's prayer. He's setting before us a model to pattern your prayer after. This is not a model to mindlessly repeat. We've said that enough, but it shows the principles and the priorities of prayer. The fact that this is a model prayer and not a rote prayer is made clear by the opening words of verse 9. Jesus says, pray then in this way. He doesn't say, pray exactly these words. He doesn't say, recite this script 50 times. And he says, pray in this way, and that, that adverb, in this way. It means along these lines or in the following manner. This is not mere formalism or ritual. This is a pattern. Look, there's nothing wrong with memorizing these words or reciting these words at all. In fact, I would definitely tell you to memorize these verses and rehearse them like we do plenty of the scriptures. But as you pray, use the Lord's Prayer as a skeleton that you flesh out on your own, that you breathe life into because you add your heart to it. And then it becomes really not the Lord's Prayer, it becomes your prayer. That you are praying to your Father in heaven. That's what it must be. And when you utilize the Lord's Prayer like this, its value really shines because nowhere do we find so succinctly the right principles of pleasing prayer, from adoration to confession to supplication. 
We'll talk about all those. But Jesus thoroughly calibrates our prayers heavenward. With this prayer, we're not, we can be assured we're not just speaking into the wind, but our Father in heaven hears us and is pleased. And that is the last introductory note we need to cover. We want to start parsing through these petitions, go over them one by one, that we might get the priorities of prayer right. We're going to do that. But as a final consideration here, it's, it's all for naught if you get the object of prayer wrong or the audience of prayer wrong. And to whom are we praying? Now, it sounds obvious in a sense. You'd say, well, of course, God. And yes, that's correct. But the way Jesus phrases the, the recipient of this prayer is so deliberate. He's telling us something that can't be missed. This too must be imitated. This is part of the pattern. And so we have number five, the audience of the prayer, the audience of the prayer. And this will take the rest of our time because this is the most important point here. The audience of the prayer. The object is, of course, God. But to Jesus, it's not just God. It's our Father who is in heaven. That's how he addresses the audience of the prayer. And with this simple address, Jesus brings together both the imminence of God and the transcendence of God as one, both of which are absolutely vital when you're approaching God in prayer. Prayer, we've learned, must not be mindless, but mindful. Our minds must be filled with the knowledge of the Lord when we pray. And though this is just a little kernel, a little capsule form, this simple address has a wealth of the knowledge of the Lord behind it. So let's unpack some of that. We're going to start with what's called the imminence of God. The imminence of God. That's a term used to express the nearness of God. He's near to us. He can be known. Though God is infinite and unsearchable, still he has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known to us. He's even drawn near to us. And God's imminence is expressed here in the simple term of endearment, our Father. Our Father. This God has somehow made us his children. And he wants us to talk to him as our Father. The term Father in the Greek is pater. But since Jesus often spoke Aramaic, the language of most Palestinian Jews, most likely underneath this term is the Aramaic term for Father, which is Abba. Abba, Father, as it's sometimes even transliterated in the Gospels. It's a term of close affection and relationship like like dad or, or daddy. Now, we know God is not a man. He does not marry. He does not procreate. There are, there are many senses in which God is not like a human father. We just need to ask, what is being communicated by God being called father here? Biblically, what is the point of God being called father? Well, you start in the Old Testament and Only about a dozen times is God referenced as the father of Israel. It's not that common. When it occurs, though, it it communicates some fatherly themes. God does not procreate, but he does create. And he is the one who created Israel. He fathered Israel. He chose them. He called them. He set his love on them to make them his own. God as father expressed both his formation of Israel and his tender, loyal love to them. What's interesting, though, is throughout the entire Old Testament, you don't find a single Israelite calling God my father or our father. Not once. The Jews never addressed God as their father. They used many other honorific titles for God, but never father. It seems they understood his transcendence, but not his imminence. That's because to them, God felt like he was still at arm's length. Yeah, sure, God, God was closer to them than to the other nations, but he was still behind a veil. In fact, in no Jewish literature at all until the 10th century do you find an example of a Jew calling God my father. There's only one exception to that. You probably guess the exception. It's Jesus. Jesus almost exclusively referred to God as his father. You look at every recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament And in every single one of them, except one, he calls God his father. Every prayer he's addressing to God as his father. 
The only exception is, not without significance, Matthew 27, verse 46, where he prays to God, not my father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's because on the cross, the father's loving kindness withdrew from him and he knew God's wrath. But to the Jews of Christ's day, God was not a personal father. So when they hear Jesus calling God father, it it riled them up. It bothered them. It seemed sacrilegious, blasphemous even. I mean, shouldn't you be addressing God with more reverential titles? Well, not if you're the son of God. Again, God does not procreate, but Jesus came as the eternal God, the son, and the title father expressed the deep love and filial bond between the two within the Godhead. In the scriptures, we know it's, it's God himself ultimately who's inspiring these words, these terms. He is the one who chose to use the terms of father and son to describe his relationship with Jesus. I think that's because he programmed into our human relationship of father and son a little picture, a little picture of his nature and his relationship with us. Jesus only confirms this later in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's going to argue that even human fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. God as father does all the more so. Jesus just couldn't help, though, call on God as his father, as, as dad, Abba. It's a special term of love and endearment and affection. And Jesus, being God the Son and the Son of God, he had the right to call on God as his Father. And he did so all the time. Now, that should strike you, though. If you can understand how Jesus has the right to call God his Father, you might also understand how we we don't have that right. We shouldn't have that right to call on God as Father. We're, We're not the Son of God. How is it that God could be described as our father? We touched on this a little bit last week, but it must be repeated. That in reality, God is not the father of all people. He's the father of all in the sense of being the creator of all, yes. But in the sense of of this intimate relationship, he is not the father of all. And that's the sense Jesus is using throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This sense of God as father applies only to the redeemed. Those in the world, scripture says they're not the children of God, but 1 John 3.10, children of the devil. Like Jesus said of those who opposed and rejected him, John 8.44, you are of your father, the devil. And once that was, we were no different. That was us. All of us were locked out of God's household. We had no part in his family because of our sin and our unrighteousness. We didn't belong. All people only knew God as judge, a righteous judge who will exile them forever because of their unrighteousness, because he is perfectly holy. And so there is only one way to know God as your father and to gain entrance into his family. And you remember that only way is by adoption. We, we enter this world depraved, corrupt, enslaved to sin and Satan, the scriptures teach. But God in his mercy made a way to, to reconcile his enemies to himself and even, even extend love to adopt them into his family. And that way is Christ. Faith in Christ, the Savior, is the only hope we have to know God as Father. Listen to John one twelve. John one twelve says, As many as received him, Christ... To them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. It's not a natural born right to be a child of God. It's given to you when you believe in Christ. And Jesus is the only way. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is the only way. He is God the Son taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, still dying on that cross. And he did so to redeem a bunch of brothers and sisters, you might say, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And it was not for his own sins he was dying on that cross, but for ours. But still, he went there and he experienced somehow for the first time God, not as father, but as judge. 
He did that so that we might never know God as judge, only as father. We might be given the right to know God as father. Jesus prayed and cried out what's called the cry of the damned for us. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did that, that we might never have to know that. We'll never know what it is to be that forsaken. We'll never know that separation. This, this redemption is offered, and it's found in, in Christ alone. There's a free offer of forgiveness of all of your sins, reconciliation to God, even adoption into his family. Uh, but to receive it, you must go to Christ in repentant faith. You got to lay down your, your lifelong rebellion against this God. Turn from your sins, put down your prodigal ways, and just return to the Father's house. He will receive you. He promises that. But only when you do that does he give you then the right to call him your Father. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. This is a gift, a gift you receive by faith. And when you do, it's at that point, it's no longer just Jesus who has the right to call God father, but it's all of us, all the redeemed, all the church can and should pray our father who is in heaven. But just, do you realize the privilege we have in Christ? Do you realize what's been done for us in Christ, that the gift, the right birthright now, the new birthright to call God our father. What does this mean for us practically now when we pray? When we pray our father, it for one means we don't have to fear anymore. We must always retain the fear of God in the sense of reverence and respect, but the sense of dread, that, that fear of judgment is gone. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're still sinners, but we're justified, which means even when we enter the Father's house in prayer, we, we no longer have to fear he's going to run us out in wrath because we don't belong. We've been justified in Christ. We, we belong. That's our house now. We actually can go to him continually and be washed of our daily unrighteousness. Knowing God as Father also assures us of his love for us. That's something we desperately need Because even though we know the truth, our sins remind us how unlovely we are. Now, it doesn't feel like we belong. God can feel really far away because of our sin. Look, that's not God's fault. That's ours. Like Adam and Eve, we're the ones who ran away from him. We hide in our guilt and shame. We're the ones who who pull away, who flee his house. But, But knowing God as father assures us we never need to do that. You don't have to run away. Like James 4, 8 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. We go to him in, in a, a repentance and faith continually. He's close. He can be found. Christ has paid it all. We, we never need to run in fear from him ever again. We go to him, confessing, uncovering our own sins, receiving only ever his love. He's a father who can be found. He knows what you need before you ask. But he still cares about you. He still wants to hear from his children because he loves them. We need every ounce of assurance that flows from God's imminence as our father. That we might pray as we're told to pray. And that's in confidence. Isn't that what Hebrews 4.16 says? Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now we're not quite done though, because there's another side to this, to how we are to relate to God in prayer. He, he wants us to relate to him personally and intimately. He, he wants us to draw near. He's made himself near in the gift of his son and in the gift of his Holy Spirit. He is very close to us. But even though he's very near, we must not treat him flippantly. We must not regard him irreverently, though he's now our father, there is another sense in which that fear of the Lord must always permeate how we relate to him. We have to see how scripture itself balances the imminence of God with the transcendence of God. That's something Christ himself does in capsule form in this prayer. As he directs us to pray, not just our father, but our father 
who is in heaven. The ancient Jews did not appreciate the imminence of God, but I think today it's the opposite. People don't appreciate the transcendence of God. Most approach God quite casually. They turn Jesus into a buddy. They treat God like he's a TV sitcom dad. Right? He, he cares, but he doesn't always get things right. He can't always help. He's not always treated with a lot of respect. But lest we fall off the other side of the cliff, Jesus gives some guardrails for our thinking. On one side, he reminds us God is near. He's, he's our father. He's imminent. He's close. But on the other side, he reminds us, but he's still exalted. He's our father in heaven. He's transcendent. Don't forget that. What is transcendence? Transcendence is just a term we use to describe how God is not like us. How he's exalted far above us. He's supreme. Just think of all the qualities that make humans greater than an amoeba. Right? We are a higher order of being on so many levels. An amoeba can't even comprehend our existence or our greatness compared to it. And that's just a little bit what it's like between us and God. That's just a little bit of the difference between us and God. How highly he's exalted above us in just every way you can imagine. God transcends us in every way. You probably know this verse, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know that verse. Actually, go and read the context. He's actually talking ethically. Ethically, God's ways are higher than our ways. He's saying he transcends us in righteousness, not just in knowledge. Yeah, we know that. But he transcends us even in righteousness. He also transcends us in time. Psalm 90 verse 2 says that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. No beginning, no end. We can't even conceive of what it's like to have no beginning. It just boggles our mind. That's because literally everything in this universe is created, had a beginning in time and space. God did not. He's the eternal, uncreated, unchanging one. The sustainer of all. No beginning, no end. He transcends us in time. He also transcends us in space. Second Chronicles 2, 6 says the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. It's a little universe stat I've thrown out before that people like. You know, it's been estimated there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. 100 billion stars. That's just our one galaxy. It's also been estimated there are 100 billion galaxies. You put that together and you get a little sense of, yeah, this this place is big. It's a pretty big place here. But it still can't fit God. He still transcends that whole space. That's that's a, a drop in the bucket to him. It's just, it boggles the mind when you stop and think how supreme and exalted this God is. I mean, what, what kind of being is this? He's not like us in so many ways. Most apparent is the fact that God is spirit. We have a physical side. We live in the material world. We feel like this is the real world, but we come to learn God is spirit. He lives in a spiritual world and his world is the real world. Now, speaking of God's world or his domain, scripture often refers to it as heaven, just like Jesus does here. Pray our father who is in heaven. Scripture does speak of heaven as a literal place, whatever place means in the spiritual realm. It's not that heaven exists somewhere beyond the Milky Way galaxy. The best we can conceive of it today is another dimension. Though omnipresent, the place or the realm of God's special presence is just what we call heaven. The point is, though, when the Bible speaks of God in the heavens, it's speaking of his exalted, transcendent nature. Just go read the book of Psalms, and they're replete with references to God being exalted above the heavens. He's, he's not just God. He's God most high. He's exalted. He's transcendent. And we could dwell on his transcendence literally forever. But the point is, he's greater than us. He's higher than us in every way. And that is something Jesus wants us to keep in mind when we pray. I think above all, the greatest application to considering God's transcendence when you pray 
is, is that reverence we were talking about. I made the comment last week that when you pray, it's, it's almost like you're being translated into the throne room of God to stand before him and speak to him. But you know, the thing is, there, there's a few examples in the Bible where people were essentially translated into God's throne room. How did they act or react in that moment? Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who says, woe, me, woe is me, for I am ruined. Or the Apostle John in Revelation 1, who just falls down like a dead man. And everything trivial in your life would be instantly incinerated if you just caught the exhaust fumes of God's glory. You'd be left in awe to worship him alone. And just that sense of reverence should be something we aspire to whenever we pray. And what do you know? The Lord's Prayer, he's going to teach us to begin our, our prayer to God with what? Not with supplication. We don't start off just telling God all the stuff we need and want. No, we start off with adoration, which is nothing other than than worship. Like we said, prayer is first and foremost praise. And sometimes you'll enter his throne room with your requests, but as you stop and contemplate his his glory, you you kind of forget about him. You realize, actually, I don't think this matters that much. They melt away, and you find yourself just praising him, but you know what? Your needs are met anyway. Interesting verse, Ecclesiastes 5.2 says this, it says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And sometimes it's just better to cover your mouth and just come before him in, in wonder and in worship. Now, this is obviously needs balance. If God were only transcendent, we might as well be Buddhists, seeking after some impersonal power force in the universe. Or if God were only imminent, we might as well be pagans, worshiping a pantheon of very relatable gods who are just a little bit better than us. But scripture alone actually reveals the true God is is both. He's imminent, he's transcendent. We must strive to somehow keep both in balance and tension, even as we pray. Look, you should thank God for his transcendence. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. You'd be praying to nothing. His nature is what makes him God. But we must never jettison the truth of who he is when we pray. But also thank God he's imminent, that we can know him as not just God, but our God. And we can pray not just Father, but our Father. Hebrews 12, 29 says God is a consuming fire. And we would just be consumed if he were not our God and our Father. But you know what? He is. If you know him and his son Christ, you can safely, boldly, reverentially approach him. This is a wonder. The wonder only gets greater when you consider really the miracle of the one speaking these words. Who's giving us this prayer? Jesus. Who is Jesus? You know, John 1, 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't fully understand how the imminence and transcendence of God meet and come together. But I know they do most of all in Jesus. In him, we are seeing the glory of God come near and be made known to us creatures. This is why Jesus was given a special name, which we learned way back in Matthew one It's the name Emmanuel which means God with us. He is God with us. I mean, just that God would do all this, he would go to such lengths. He would sacrifice his son for for amoeba like us. Realize, worse than that, we're sinners who exchanged his glory for a lie. It's beyond us. But this is the glory of the gospel. It's why we preach it, why we celebrate it, why we share it, why we're not ashamed of it. We have good news here. But do you know this Christ? Submit your life to him now. Give up your rebellion against this God now and turn to him. And for any of you Christians here who might be straying, repent and return now. Return in reverence to this Lord of Lords and get back to to approaching him, praying him, knowing him as, as you should, our Father who is in heaven. What do we pray after that? We'll get to it. There'll be plenty of time for all that to come. But 
it, it really is enough sometimes to just stay here on the mountaintop and behold the glory of our Father, our Father, who is in heaven. See Christ, and one day you won't need to pray, our Father, who is in heaven, because he promises a day will come when he will take you there to heaven to, to be forever with the Lord. You'll, you will know God with us to the full. As much as we can without being incinerated, you'll know God with us. Then we will simply pray, our Father, because we will be there with him forever. Why don't we go now to our Father and thank him for this blessed hope. Our Father who is in heaven. That's our prayer. We want to address you rightly, God, as you are, and, and worship We don't always need to lay our requests down before you, although we know you're a good father who wants to hear from us. We will, but for now, we can just approach you and and marvel at, at the God to whom we get the privilege and now the right to speak, your God in heaven. We bow before your majesty and your transcendence. We we truly cannot fathom. We we can grasp a little bit what you've revealed, but just who are you? Thank God you have revealed yourself in the scriptures that we might know you. The God who made us, the God who called Israel out through the Red Sea, the God who did an even greater wonder in in calling us away from slavery to sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. The scripture contains wonder after wonder of your power and your majesty. Fill our eyes with it. And not just an intellectual exercise, but fill our hearts with it as we just bow down and worship, as our hearts are filled with wonder and awe. But come near to us, Lord, we we need you. We need to know and remember this God is, is personal and he is our father. He does know all of our names. He's counted all the hairs in our heads. We can't have a, a confidence to draw near knowing this God somehow loves us and has set his, his affection on us. He's guarding us. He's protecting us. He will draw us to himself forever all through the wonder of your son Christ and his cross. And so fill us with wonder and with, with worship and may that affect our lives as we live. But this morning, learn to affect our prayers. Teach us to pray as we should, coming before our Father who is in heaven. And so now the name of Christ, we also pray. Amen.